Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Now I have a question you probably would not have expected, you guys. First of all, thanks for tuning in again to Everyone Talks to Liz. Any one of you ever been to a pool hall? Okay, let me set the scene for you. Uh, and I'm sure many are different, but the flickering neon light that says, pool this way, it hangs loosely in the window, clouds of smoke circling the air, the clinking of beer bottles, green felt tables fill the room, the aroma of winning and losing is everywhere. But my guest today took the opportunity while working in a pool hall at the age of 16 to absorb all of it and learn from it so he could use those skills, including the famed poker face, to get a job at Google and build companies, including the one he owns today and runs, the production board. It's his investment holding giant he established to solve the most fundamental problems that affect our planet by reimagining global systems of production across food, agriculture, biomanufacturing, and human health. Okay, let me cut to the chase. This guy is solving problems for the whole world. Born in South Africa, at the age of six, his family moved across the world to Los Angeles. And while he was in high school, not only he started the climate club, but got the job at the pool hall where he started learning life lessons. My guest today is David Friedberg, and I am so honored to have you here because I found your story unbelievably compelling, especially the part where you were an astrophysic major (laughs) and you didn't even do astrophysics in the end. Hi, David. Hey, Liz. Thanks for having me. Oh, great to have you. Uh, I mean, the pool hall thing is unbelievable. Your parents let you work in a pool hall at age 16? Well, I, I went to college early and I was living in upstate New York uh, for a year. And I can always tell my kids I walked, you know, a mile through the snow to go get paid $4.25 an hour. And it wasn't as active as you shared in your narrative. It was just me and typically the bookie, uh, the local bookie who sat at the payphone next to me at the counter and the whole place was empty. And he would take all of uh, the bets uh, and he would run them all from the payphone. And then I would sweep the floor and clean the toilets. And, you know, that was it. And then the four twenty-five an hour I made, I gave all of it back to the manager of the pool hall who ran a home poker game. And he's like, you got to come play poker with us at home. And I started playing in their home poker game and lost more than 100% of the limited funds I had made working at the pool hall. So it set me down a path of realizing I kind of got to, you know, take control of my own destiny a little bit, bought a bunch of books on how to play poker. And then when I went to Cal, the next year, which is where I went for four years, I played in the local card clubs and made a bunch of money playing poker. So, you know, um, the setbacks, the disappointment and the costs, I would say, of working in the pool hall set me up um, in, a, in a pretty important way. And I will say, well, you, you never think about these chain reactions, but the working, uh, the, the making money playing poker during college, it was a new thing back then. This was before online poker. Uh, and when I applied for jobs out of Cal as an astrophysics major, 
no one's going to interview an astrophysics major for an investment banking job. I was able to get investment banking interviews because on my resume, I put like pool, a poker player. So everyone wanted to meet me and talk to me about <laughs> poker. And so that got me a job that got me working at Google that got me into Silicon Valley that got me into tech that allowed my kind of career trajectory. So the chain reaction of events of getting drawn into the home poker game, working at the pool hall at 16 in upstate New York, leading me to kind of where I ended up. You never know where life's going to take you. And it, it all it's all linked. You really don't know. And that is why we have you on Everyone Talks to Liz. And I thought when I saw your story, all of these steps that in a way may have seemed disparate at the time, and some of them worrisome, like losing the money and being a kid and getting sucked in by people like that. You know, I, I thought this is a story that our listeners really need to hear and the very kind of story they absorb and appreciate. Um, I don't want to just let you roll over something you already said, and that is you went to college early. Are you a boy genius? Uh, like, how did that happen? Yeah, look, I mean, I was, I'd say, yeah, you could just say I was a little more advanced and I was kind of done with with high school and moved on. I mean, I went to a you know, kind of a private school in LA that I, I, in my classes were like Kim Kardashian and Paris Hilton and <laughs> Nicole Richie. I mean, um, so, you know, it was not really a good fit. We, we didn't come from a, you know, a wealthy background. My parents are documentary filmmakers who moved to LA to make films, uh, make documentary films from South Africa. Um, and so, you know, school, I, I would say that that school probably wasn't the best fit for me. I, uh, was eager to get out. I was a little more advanced and, you know, yeah, pretty good at math and science and all that. So found this opportunity to go to upstate New York, to go to college a year, a couple years early, I guess. And, um, and that was my, you know, the start of it all, I guess. Were your parents worried about sending you off at such a young age to upstate New York where, uh, yeah, I love the walk to walk to work, walk to school, a mile uphill, both ways in the snow. Yeah. I got that from my parents too, but you actually did. So I applied, I got the scholarship to go there and I had never, I didn't decide what I wanted to do. I actually went to Harvard for the summer um, after my junior year of high school. So I was 15 years old. I went to Harvard and then um, I did the summer program and I drank a lot of Zima and smoked a lot of cigarettes <laughs> and uh, got D's taking the advanced physics courses I was taking that summer, to be honest. While I was there, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so fun hanging out in the, in the yard, drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, meeting girls. Um, I want to stay in college. I have no interest whatsoever in going back to LA. So I got on a Greyhound bus at the end of the summer and I went to New York City and I, I had a, a cousin and he let me stay on his couch for two weeks. And I stayed on his couch for two weeks and I accepted the offer to go to upstate New York. Then I got on another Greyhound bus, went to upstate New York. So I actually didn't go home for six months. I kind of let my parents know, hey, I'm going to go do this thing in upstate New York. I'll see you guys later. Um, parents sound and, uh, very hippie-esque and let him live and let him be free and fly away. That's, that's, that's pretty one, that's, lucky. That's one way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Documentarians. Yeah, yeah I get yeah. it. You, I mean, you could ask, uh, some people would say, Hey, they're very bohemian. And some people would say, how the hell did they let you do that? Uh, what's wrong with them? Depends who you ask. Right. Well, exactly. Um, yeah. after being in the pool hall and in upstate New York, you did move to UC Berkeley, my alma mater, yay, go Bears. Uh, and you did the, as we said, <clears throat> astrophysics uh, program. But you knew that you really kind of wanted to be in finance. I mean, how did you? No, so, so yeah, I was, I, was, um, I was working in a government lab, uh, that Lawrence Berkeley lab, where they do mm -hmm. a lot of um, you know, research in energy. And it was super boring. I was in a basement doing computer modeling. And I was like, this is, this is super boring. I was the only person down there. 
And Silicon Valley was happening. And Silicon Valley was transforming every industry, every market, right? So this was 1998, yeah. 99. I was like, oh my God, I got to go to Silicon Valley. I got to be in this. There was a kid who was in my dorm freshman year who started an online DVD retail store and he sold it for a million dollars to you know, CD Universe or something. And I was like, my God, this is incredible. Like this kid... You know, the rest of us are going to the bar and drinking two dollar beers and you know, excited about discount beer night. And he sold his company for a million dollars. Meanwhile, you know, I was reading papers about all the, the industries that are being changed. I'm like, I want to go to Silicon Valley. The best p- path to kind of getting into the business world, as you know, at that time was to go get a job in investment banking. That was like the hot job to to get. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had played a lot of poker. Um, and put that on my resume, got these interviews, and I got mm-hmm. a job working in a tech kind of banking firm in Silicon Valley. And that got me started in Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, and then I work with, you know, probably 30 tech companies over the next two years as a banking analyst. And uh, and then I kind of, you know, and on the side, I done a, uh, started a little company, an online kind of business um, that did kind of uh, research Q&A. It was like this online Q- paid Q&A site. And I figured out how to build websites. I figured out how to program them, how to build payment gateway interfaces, Mm-hmm. You know, all, all the work I had done and all the advertising I had done ultimately got me the job at Google uh, in doing that work, plus the tech stuff. And so I was at Google, small private company, a couple hundred people. And then, you know, that business went through the IPO and, and well, so on. So. And, th- and, that's a, and that is the great history of Google, uh, which is still playing out to this day. Uh, and I think, though, about your steps and where you are today working on solving the world's problems through investing. And I go back to your high school experience and you started a club. Let's talk about that. And what got you thinking so early before even the term climate change was a thing? Yeah. So um, there was a club on campus called students healing our planet earth. And I kind of became the president of that club um, which, uh, you know, environmental catastrophes and, uh, global warming. And all, there were these kind of prescient early kind of observations of these things that, you know, I took to heart and thought need, need attention and need, need care. And we should do something about the world. And, uh, it just felt like, um, you know, a big problem worth solving. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's an important orientation for, for me to find, you know, that I have always kind of leaned towards. It's like, what are the big problems that are worth solving? Um, and so, you know, that may have been the case back then as it is today. If it's not a big problem worth solving, I'm probably not going to be that compelled or interested by it. Well, when you founded the company, the Climate Corporation, that was a very interesting one because that was a way to establish providing insurance to people whose businesses were negatively impacted by global warming and and other natural events, correct? And that really kind of was a a fascinating mission at the time. What year was that? And, you know, how did it do? How did you get people to look at that and say, you know what, I'm going to take a chance on this business? Yeah. In 2006, I started the company and I'd been working on AdWords at Google, which is a real-time auction system. So advertisers bid for ad space and Mm -hmm. they get um, shown in real time when users search. Um, And so the the ability to do this kind of, you know, real-time modeling uh, led me to kind of say, hey, there's this opportunity. Um, I was driving past a, a store called the Bike Hut every day to work. The bike hut rented bicycles on the waterfront in San Francisco. They were shut down when it was raining. 
And I was like, man, that's a pretty crappy business. Whether or not the guy makes money is based on the weather. And I had been playing poker at a local card room. And some guy told me about weather derivatives that Enron had created and started trading. And I thought like, why don't we make weather derivatives available to every business like the bike store? And that was the idea is we could simulate the weather, use the weather simulations to in real time, figure out the probability of a weather event, let people buy insurance against the weather for their, for their business. And so that was the premise, started the business, launched it in 2000, in January 1st, 2007. And, you know, no one showed up to buy and then I had to go sell. And so I ended up going on the road and Liz, I don't know if you'll ever meet anyone who's been to more different industry trade shows as I have. (laughs) I've been to the National Car Wash Owners Association, the National Golf Course um, Owners Association, the Lawn and Turf Managers Association. I've been to pretty much every agriculture conference. I mean, I I walked around and passed out umbrellas. I've sold, um, you know, small business owners large business owner, hydroelectric plants, ski resorts, private equity firms that own these ski resorts. Nearly every business is affected by the weather. And so I learned a lot meandering through all these markets, meandering through all these industries, meeting all these CEOs, and really learning what problems the weather was providing, was was delivering to them, how we could help them, and what would or wouldn't be a good fit for our business. By 2009, I pivoted the company exclusively to focus on agriculture. Farmers put their entire balance sheet on the line every year. They buy all the stuff they put in the ground. And then whether or not the weather kind of works out um, is whether or not they'll make money that year. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, it's a perfect fit for what we were doing. We figured out how to take our product and make it more specific to farming, how to make it specific to a specific type of crop based on when the farmer planted, based on the type of seed they were using. So we kept tweaking and tweaking and iterating on the product. And you know that that's kind of how the business really got, got, got accelerated. But David, when you say, you know, nobody showed up, that's... That's the part that a lot of people don't understand. They look at businesses today that are super successful and oh, isn't he lucky? He's making so much money. They don't think about those first weeks, months, years where there are no profits. You can barely make payroll. You can't hire people. And it's really scary. Did you face that? Yeah, I think... um... You know, I, I I was rejected by every VC. I, by the way, I still get rejected by investors almost all the time. So okay. it, it's 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 become a part of life, and it's the sort of skin you 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 build um, as you try and do new things in life. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I was rejected. So I, the way I was able to get some capital in the business when I started it was I had to go raise money from friends that had made a bunch of money selling their uh, with Google's IPO. So I did a pass the hat. I raised like two point two million dollars, and that's how I got. Um, the climate corporation off the ground. And then it was, I had to sell. And by the way, my mindset was always that the company will never die. There's no way I will ever let this thing die. Okay. There's not a chance, it is it is not an option. So, you know, I would sell and I would do whatever it would take to get a sale done um, and to figure out what this business needs to become. And then, you know, my biggest kind of point of advice to entrepreneurs always is that the most important skill you can have is bias to action. Um, rather than analyze, and think that you're going to make the right decision. It's much better to act and then learn from the action and then make the next decision. Well, let me let me ask you this then. You people, that's really great to say. Let me act. Some people become paralyzed with fear when they are faced with dwindling funds, no more investments, bank account is empty. We've had incredible people on this podcast who would, they would like you know steal from Peter to pay Paul when it came to making payroll and. It's sometimes people give up really when faced with terror like that. 
how do you, how do you avoid like saying, I'm not going to throw my hands up and say, I'm done. Yeah. That's, that's why I don't think it's, um, being an entrepreneur is something that is encouraged in this country. Um, but I think that supporting entrepreneurship doesn't necessarily mean being an entrepreneur. And I think that, um, you know, the majority of people should probably support entrepreneurship and support new business building, support innovation, support pioneering activities in this country to drive progress, drive the economy forward. Um, that doesn't mean everyone should be the sole entrepreneur because not everyone's going to survive uh, in, in that um, in that environment. It's a very difficult environment. Uh, and that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with those people. It's just a certain type of character that I think is needed uh, to deal with uh, with what you're describing, uh, which is the absence of everything <laughs> and, uh, and 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 you know whatever it takes to kind of get out of that 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 circumstance. Um, you know, is, is a certain character. Um, well, there you are bias to yeah. action guys. Don't give up. You just keep moving forward in that regard. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's list, your go-to home services marketplace for getting all your jobs done. Well, now you might be wondering what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project big or small as a homeowner myself i always have things i want to work on for my house whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool with over 200,000 pros in their network angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. You know, your interest in climate and solving these problems I don't need to get political here, but it's standing right in front of our faces and it bugs the hell out of me that looking at climate change has suddenly become a red or blue issue. And that annoys me. You know, people on the right, oh, this is just BS. And, you know, they tend to want to really continue with fossil fuels, et cetera. And I'm not, I don't mean to generalize because there are some people on the right who actually really do see the changes in climate and rising oceans, et cetera. And then people on the left sometimes overstate it in that regard. But I'm sorry, climate change is real. I can declare that right now on this podcast, because all you have to do is look at the fact that, I mean, I've been a skier since, you know, for decades, there's very little snow in the Colorado Rockies by the end of March in the Many years ago, there was a ton. I mean, things are changing, are they not? How do you get people to look at this and take it seriously? Yeah, so look, I, I think the question is, what are you trying to get them to take seriously? Um, I, I, my, my view on this has kind of um, 
widened a bit, shifted a bit um, over the years uh, in terms of how I talk about and think about climate change. So okay. there's absolutely, um, you know, uh, an effect on, on, on the climate being driven by human emissions of carbon. Um, the question is, is that really um, a problem that requires that we reduce our consumption as a species? And I think the answer is no. Um, and I think this is where the both sides are right. Um, the idea that humans, uh, particularly, I mean, just think about this, Liz, you and I live in an extraordinarily privileged uh, life. Uh, we, we, we live in, in warm homes with plenty of food and we can do anything we want anytime we want. We have access to everything. 95% of the world's people don't live in that condition. They're coming up the ladder, right? They're coming up that, that, that pyramid. When, when people are coming up that pyramid, they move from eating no meat to suddenly wanting to eat meat. They move from not having a car to having a car. They move from having a one-bedroom home for everyone to having a, a bedroom for everyone. Um, most of the world's people, as economic progress uh, continues, uh, are going to move up that ladder. And their orientation is not about stopping climate change by reducing their consumption mm -hmm. and making things, quote, more sustainable by eating less and doing less. Um, they're more interested in, in um, improving their own condition. And, and so I think what we need to do as a species and what humans have naturally done for 200,000 years is to continue to innovate and build technologies that allow us to consume more, to get access to more with less. Okay. And so te technical progress means that you can get um, uh, you know, um, more for less, you can get um, more food, more home, more, 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 more miles traveled without all the energy consumption, right? Without all of the dollars spent, uh, without all of the water used, without all of the resources used. Um, and it's actually cheaper, better, and gives people the ability to consume, to increase their consumption. So I think that you see footprint go down, the human impact on the planet go down mm -hmm. by building technologies that allow people to have more abundance. Uh, and so that's my orientation on how we solve this. I do not think that there's any solution to climate change um, that will scale, uh, that just tells people consume less, do less, mm -hmm. um, have less, make less. Um, all those solutions, I think, ultimately fall flat with 95% of the world. Uh, and that's why I don't think that there. So, so my orientation and where I spend my time and my capital is investing in innovations and technologies that will allow humans to access more, to get more consumption, to have more abundance on this earth, um, where the footprint ultimately is less uh, because it's, it's technically advantaged. It, it provides leverage. You have a lot of companies under your umbrella. I'd like to know the one that you're most excited about right now. It's hard to say, uh, you know, I, I won't, um, I won't kind of pick a company. Um, we have a lot of work that we do um, in, uh, in food and agriculture. Yes. And I think that the room for efficiency improvements across food and agriculture uh, is extraordinary. Just if you took, let, let me give you a couple of statistics. In the United States, the average corn farmer makes 174 bushel an acre. In Brazil, in China, it's 110. And in Nigeria, it's 75 or Kenya, it's 75 or 70 bushel an acre. Those are similar climate, similar soil, different technologies being used. The farmers are not using the same technology. They don't all have the same farm equipment. They don't all use software. Um, they don't all use these biologic solutions that, that are changing agriculture. There are new technologies. There's a long spectrum, a wide spectrum of technology adoption. And as you see technology get adopted in agriculture, particularly in places like Latin America, um, you see the farmers make more money. You see the, the farming being more sustainable, meaning there's less of a permanent environmental footprint. There's less topsoil erosion, et cetera, et cetera. You see the price of food decline. You see the yield per acre go up, et cetera. 
Um, and so I'm generally interested in these sets of technologies and how do we uh, drive their utilization mm. across farmers around the world. I just uh, came from Rome and I was uh, attending the summit, the global summit uh, to honor the Abraham Accords, which established relations between Israel and Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, South Sudan. And the Israeli technology is a huge lure. They are doing micro irrigation drip, drip irrigation. They're showing African nations how to squeeze water from the air company called Watergen. It's just amazing. There's so much brilliant technology here. For people who are listening, who think, you know, I have an idea. I have a technology I really believe in. What's your best advice for pushing it forward and making it a reality? Look, I, I tell people my three biggest predictors of entrepreneurial success are um, uh, grit, bias to action, and, and a narrative. So, so, you know, we talked about bias to action. You, uh, I'll say something on your point you made earlier in terms of bias action. I've seen so many successful people fail at starting a company because they have been successful, <laughs> meaning their pattern recognition is mm -hmm. I do the thing that I know I'm supposed to do, and then I get rewarded for it. In entrepreneurism, you're doing something that has not been done. Yes. So you will more likely fail. And, and so then if you're spending all your time analyzing to find the right decision before actually taking action, you're going to run out of time and die. And that then leads you to grit because what then happens is when you make that decision, when you take that action, you're going to fail. I tell people the experience of starting a company is that four out of five days, you take a step backwards. One out of five days, you take a five-step leap forward. Mm -hmm. So at the end of five days, you're only one step ahead of where you started. But your, ex your ex experiential memory is that 80% of the time you were failing. And you know you can speak in a market basis like the mean variance on that is extraordinary. Yes. You know you're, you you have a slight alpha, but your beta is incredible. And so in order to have um, that experience persist, you have to have the character to put up with it. And then narrative: you are not going to be successful as an entrepreneur if you cannot sell customers, investors, and your employees. Narrative is all about storytelling, and storytelling is one of the most underappreciated skills of true entrepreneurism. And it is one that you can see the greatest entrepreneurs having the greatest skill at, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. These are folks that can get on stage and convince an entire room of something that they didn't even know about a minute ago. Um, and I think that that storytelling ability uh, is, is critical. So to, to your question, reflection on those three for individuals and then ability to kind of recognize whether or not you're going to be able to kind of deliver on those is, 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 mm -hmm. is the, the self-effacing question I think folks should be asking. Okay, everybody, you have your homework set out for you because David just named those three important characteristics you've got to have. But David, some people are not born with the ability to stand up in front of a group or a potential client and sell something and get excited and look them straight in the eye and really push it. You know, I tell people that my parents were Canadian. They became American when they moved here, but I was raised in a very Canadian polite way. And that doesn't work in local news where you have to shove microphones in guilty politicians and criminals' faces and say, why'd you do it? I had to fight every cell in my DNA to overcome that. You can overcome that. Folks, you can change certain aspects of yourself if you want it badly enough. Right, David? Yeah. No limits.
And I think that storytelling is one that can certainly be learned. Um, and I think that uh, the more you do it, the better you get at it. I so appreciate what you have just given our listeners a masterclass in a nutshell on, on really how to push what you believe in. Thank you so much for joining us, David. Good luck to you. Thanks, Liz. This was great. Great to have you. And um, folks, the weather outside is frightful, but we're warm and cozy here every week on Everyone Talks to Liz. And I'm so glad you duck in and take the time to listen. And again, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox Biz. How did I meet David? Because I had him as a guest on my show. We have amazing guests every single day trying to help you make, protect, and grow your money. So I hope you tune in. Thank you so much and make it a great week. Want to listen ad-free? You can do it with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And then Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.